Okay, welcome back, everybody. Uh, looks like uh, most of the crowd is back with us. A couple of people had to go all the way to Brooklyn to get their bagels, but I'm sure they'll be back in a minute. Uh, so um, thank you for joining us for uh, the last part of this session. We're going to have um, a great afternoon, and we're going to kick it off with Dr. Connie Kellum. She is an infectious diseases physician, an epidemiologist, and one of the world's foremost clinical researchers in the area of prevention of HIV and other sexually transmitted infections. Um, She's a professor of global health, medicine, and epidemiology, and director of the International Clinical Research Center at the University of Washington. Uh, Connie was co-chair of the Partners Prep Study, which you may remember uh, that contributed to the FDA approval of TDF-FTC for PrEP in 2012. And she is now focusing on implementation science research about PrEP and STI interventions for young African women and gay and bisexual men in the U.S. And so today she is going to talk with us about the challenges and the successes of PrEP implementation. Dr. Kellum. Thank you so much, Melanie. That was a really nice introduction. And it's really a pleasure to speak to this group about now it's almost, uh, boy, approaching a decade of experience in taking our first-generation oral PrEP and learning from trying to deliver it. And just as a quick intro, um, you know, I felt like I kind of had the impression that your job is done when you um, do the clinical trial and you demonstrate efficacy. And I realized it's actually much harder (laughs) than I ever would have imagined to know how to deliver new interventions. And so I've really learned a lot in the um, past eight, nine years since we had those, uh, since Partners Prep and other trials showed effectiveness of um, TDF, FTC. So um, just to jump into it, I, you know, I think that I like to show this slide because it um, reminds me that, yes, we do have many, many countries that are implementing PrEP, um, but we're far from the uh, UNAIDS target of 3 million people on PrEP. And you can see, um, if you can read the graph, that there's um, pretty small numbers in many parts of the world. Um, so we should celebrate that we've come a long way, but we also need to be motivated to try to um, learn from the lessons and address the challenges. So in terms of my disclosure, I did receive uh, support in terms of provision of medications from Gilead Sciences for Partners Prep, and I've been a scientific advisor to Gilead and Merck. So I'm hoping that through this talk, <clears throat> excuse me, that you'll be able to identify examples of successes and be familiar with challenges with PrEP delivery, and uh, both in the U.S. and globally, that you'll be able to understand the um, great potential for population-level impact of PrEP and where it has been de- demonstrated to have a population-level impact, and to be better prepared to implement implement choice of PrEP formulations in the future, again, utilizing lessons learned from delivery of oral PrEP. So I um, appreciate Dr. Nitya Panapak, who gave a great talk at AIDS 2020. If you um, didn't hear it, I recommend it, where she really brought this notion of a cascade, which has helped us so much in terms of our thinking about how, uh, how to deliver ART to 
prep. And I want to say really clearly, and I'll come back to this um, at the end, that the cascade looks different and always will look at different for prevention and treatment. That whereas we're aiming for 95, 95, 95, if we can get there, and I hope we can for treatment, we're going to see fall off for different reasons for prevention. It is not a lifelong intervention for the vast majority of people. So <clears throat> let's just briefly overview, go through an overview of the prevention cascade lens. First, the denominator is the people who need it, and that changes during um, people's uh, sort of sexual lifetime, if you will. Uh, then there's motivation, and um, ideally we want to get both people who need it and are motivated to use it, and we need to identify interventions to help people who need it but aren't motivated. Then there's access, and how do we get those who need it or motivated to be able to access it? And then there <clears throat> will also be some drop-off for people who meet all those criteria, but then are not able to use it. So let's use this framework to think about what we've learned uh, with oral prep. And I need to remind people the reason why we're even having this conversation is that we've really sort of stalled out in terms of progress in HIV prevention in the U.S. And just as, you know, you can see that in terms of number of new infections. You can see it um, in the majority of um, uh, transmission categories based on race, ethnicity, and behavior. And uh, where you can see in 2018, the red bars in some cases are going in the wrong direction in terms of uh, like Latino, uh, gay, and bisexual men. Um, that the, Really the only group where we've had a substantial drop between 24 and 2018 in number of new infections is in white, gay, and bisexual men. And this is shown in a different way in this slide that just shows over those same years uh, the trend where we're seeing a increase in, <clears throat> excuse me, new infections in in the last uh, in the 2014 to 2018 timeframe between um, uh, for African and American and Latino MSM, um, whereas we're seeing a little uh, downward trend for whites. So that's why we're talking about this. And finally, in the U.S., we have a strategic plan, and it's kind of always a little disturbing to realize how long it took us to get here. But that there are four pillars to ending the HIV epidemic in the U.S., and this is true globally. We have to do a better job at diagnosing um, HIV infection by increasing HIV testing, particularly in populations that are not uh, that have a higher proportion of persons not knowing their status. We have to do better at treatment and retaining people in care and achieving and sustaining viral suppression. We have to do um, as a much better job in prevention. Um, that's where our biggest gap has been, I think, in terms of increasing both um, primary and secondary prevention because um, treatment is also prevention. And then lastly, use um, in increasing number of kinds of tools, including molecular surveillance and outbreak investigations to um, respond uh, to new uh, settings where we're seeing new infections. And if we could do this well, and we should be able to do this well, we have the tools, we should be able to reduce HIV transmissions by 75% by 2025, which is feeling like it's around the corner. So the plan really focuses on the jurisdictions that have 
um, accounted for 50% of new HIV infections in the recent past. I want to highlight one thing that is an underpinning when we think about HIV prevention in the U.S., and this was a paper I refer you to by Aaron Siegler in Annals of Epidemiology, how important it is that we not just silo HIV as a separate health issue, that um, having policies in place that support um, treatment and prevention are essential. And the single biggest factors that accounted for um, PrEP use in the U.S. in 2018 were whether or not they had a state drug assistance program for PrEP and Medicaid expansion. So keep that in mind because we, while we may be passionate about doing something about HIV, we can't have such a narrow lens that we forget that we have to improve healthcare access generally um, to achieve our goals. So I'm going to now shift to kind of a, a different um, part of the talk and talk about some of the successes and challenges. And I thought it was useful first to talk about tale of cities, and in this case, the tale of PrEP in U.S. cities, starting with San Francisco, which has really put a lot of effort into improving um, uh, both ART treatment and PrEP as being one of the fast-track cities. And, you know, they have about 78%, if you remember that cascade of uh, starting with people who are evaluated for PrEP and therefore at need, uh, 78% initiated PrEP. And if you can read the small print below, the, the single biggest issue why people didn't um, make it from evaluation to initiation of PrEP is cost or insurance issues. And... <clears throat> And then there were about 47% were retained in PrEP. And these numbers vary by city. But in, in general, we're in cities that have really dealt with pure navigation programs and have uh, clinics who make it easy for people to access um, PrEP. Like in San Francisco, they have a community-based clinic with a nurse-led program, and they have free sexual health services, they're doing pretty good at that first step, but then there's bigger drop-off and retention. And again, some of it is just the nature of our healthcare system where people transfer in and out of care, but um, we should be able to do better than that, I think. And some of it is the nature of the product. A pill a day or even 211 event-driven prep is not for everyone. <clears throat> Continuing on this theme... <coughs> excuse me, of PrEP in different U.S. cities, shift to New York City, where New York State put a large investment into trying to end the HIV epidemic several years ago. And part of the program that Dimitri Daskalakis, who's now heading the HIV program at the Centers for Disease Control, part of his approach in New York City was to develop status-neutral HIV services. And here you can see a little more detailed cascade, but you can see where the drop-offs are. Again, a little steeper drop-off between um, prep navigation to accepting it to um, all the way to getting to um, prep um, linkages and receiving prep. But that's a pretty steep drop-off in a city that um, had dedicated resources to do this. So again, it's just showing us that um, we need to better understand the reasons for those drop-off. I'll now shift to the tale of um, Seattle, where I am based. 
And we were proud to be one of the first cities to achieve 95-95-95. And we're, part of that is by doing trying to be innovative and, and um, responsive to the barriers and treatment cascades and simultaneously trying to up the targets of PrEP coverage. And so it started out as 30% target of high-risk MSM and now close to hitting the target of 50%. And the way they did this is through state-level um, PrEP support. And I think Washington State was one of the first states to have a PrEP DAP program, and that really helped um, a lot because it covers not only PrEP, but it also covers STI services, which end up being not a trivial component of the cost of PrEP delivery. There's a very strong commitment from the um, county health department, which also has strong linkages to the University of Washington. The STD clinic is one of the biggest providers with about 700 PrEP clients and also through a, a community clinic that offers telehealth. Uh, telehealth for PrEP, and then a pharmacy-based PrEP program. And that pharmacy-based program was first reported at CROI in 2017, and it was a one-step um, tele... It's become a tele-PrEP program at the time when they reported it at CROI about four years ago. They actually would come into the pharmacy, but they didn't actually have to see a physician. The physician was kind of behind the scenes reviewing the lab data and they've adapted and innovated on that initial model. And it is a highly popular place and uh, a highly popular way for people to receive PrEP without having to um, incur the costs and inconvenience of doctor's visits. And let's come to Georgia and Atlanta, where Melanie is based. Um, and I want to thank Dr. Aaron Siegler for providing some of these data. They have created a program, if you're not aware of it, I just want to highlight the AIDS View program, which really provides useful data at a national, state, county, and even city basis, where you can really drill down on where is PrEP use the highest, and that, that's in the upper left-hand panel here, where it's showing that really the darkest color is in central Atlanta, but then on the below in orange um, and red, there it's showing you the map of um, Atlanta where actually the need for PrEP based on HIV prevalence in those areas is actually central and south um, Atlanta. So translating that to a PrEP delivery or uptake to need ratio, um, there's kind of a somewhat of a mismatch and they need to and are trying to address the need for more prep um, programs and uh, providers in uh, South Atlanta to meet uh, the needs of people living in, in that area. But they are doing that. And I think the last panel on the lower right shows the increasing trends in um, prep uptake in 2018, 2019, where they're seeing that in Fulton, um, DeKalb and Gwinnett uh, counties. I think, again, borrowing from um, Aaron Siegler and other and Patrick Sullivan's work, they've done an elegant mapping of um, PrEP uh, access and, and some of the policies that uh, underlie some of these gaps nationally. And they came up with this term PrEP deserts, 
where there are parts of the country where people have to drive um, more than two hours in red. And you can see this on the left-hand side where there are big areas, big swaths of the country where people have to drive two hours to get prep. And um, and it's um, on the right is it showing those same uh the same geographic um, pattern for people who are uninsured men who have sex with men. So um, we've got challenges on this front um, if we're going to have an impact in the U.S. And another challenge, and I uh, like to remind people about this article that uh, it was a, actually an opinion piece in the New York Times in 2017 where someone, if I remember correctly, in the southeast part of the U.S., described uh, his experience um, in talking to a doctor about PrEP. And he was really um, uncomfortable talking about um, his interest in PrEP. And his provi- and he describes the provider's response saying, well, you don't need PrEP. You don't engage in reckless sex and you're not a druggie. And it really bothered him and it made him much less likely to want to um, take PrEP. So one of the solutions, so that's one of the challenges. Now, one of the successes is coming from Atlanta, and Aaron Siegler and Patrick Sullivan and others have developed a program called PrEP at Home, and they developed this um, way before COVID, because you can see the publication date here is 2018. And basically, they, in a very um, kind of proactive way, realized that if you're going to get high levels of PrEP coverage, we have to reduce the burden on participants and on uh, and users and on clinics. So this program allows um, people who are using PrEP to reduce their clinic visits from four times a year to once a year. And they basically send out a kit that includes STI sample collection and even a finger stick to get the HIV um, test from a um, dried blood spot with a prepaid mailer, some uh, a brief questionnaire and the results come back to the clinician and then they can access prep and what they found in their evaluation of this and this was the early data um, where they had about 55 people who were enrolled in it that 87 percent wanted to use this instead of coming in for clinic visits and 40 percent thought they would um, st- have a higher likelihood of staying on PrEP if they had access to such a program. So we can do so much through um, mail delivery. We've all benefited from that during uh, COVID, and we should really, I think, be expanding on this approach in the, the U.S., given our, um, our fractured healthcare system. Another success from a, now moving away from the U.S. was reported last um, month at Croy when John Michelle Molina reported on the Prevener study, where they um, basically, after they demonstrated uh, efficacy of event-driven or some people call on-demand um, TDF-FTC among men who have sex with men, for a little over three years, they basically gave people choice um, to either go on daily or on-demand. They did... Um, brief um, and limited lab monitoring. Most people went on uh, same-day prep. And then they evaluated, um, after this had been in place for about three years, the impact on 
new infections in Paris, and they found a 15% reduction in new HIV diagnoses in that time. And uh, and so this is really, I think, we been influential in our thinking about um, offering choice of daily as well as on demand. And there were other data, which I didn't have time to include, but I refer you to CROI, where they showed um, an impact at a national level in France as well. So good good progress in parts of Europe. I also want to highlight another country that is teaching us, yes, we can do this, and that is Thailand. And again, I thank Dr. Nitya Panapak for sharing these data, where they looked at um, their prep cascade among men who have sex with men, and they also pre- she presented on transgender women. So again, I refer you to her AIDS 2020 talk if you want more detail where she showed that they actually had high effective use defined as uh, drug levels indicating and self-reported use indicating at least four tabs a week and and or correct use of on-demand prep. So they had pretty, um, they were showing better than many programs in terms of the proportion, almost 100% after three months um, of effective use Um defined as uh, as at least taking four pills or more per week or effectively dosing uh, unprotected sex. Another country or two countries that have taught us we can do this and we should be able to do this at scale because if you, I work a lot in Africa and I uh, really appreciate how hard this must have been to do this. But in the search trial, which was initially looking at treatment as prevention, um, they decided in 2016 to 2017 to take that same platform and layer in PrEP and offered PrEP in 16 communities in the context of these health fairs shown in the picture on the left on the shores of Lake Victoria where they tested for HIV, screened for hypertension, diabetes, and did rapid tests for malaria. And they, uh, if you were positive, found to be HIV infected, you would... um, get into their um, programs for supporting universal ART and um, patient-centered care. And if you're negative, they would do screening for um, PrEP. Um, And I'll tell you more about that on the next slide. And what they did is they did a risk assessment. And again, I don't have time to go into a lot of details, but it was based on whether or not they had number of partners, whether or not someone had a known positive partner or just perceived themselves to need PrEP um, without disclosing why. And they had um, basically out of the 76,000 people, adults who were screened, they had about uh, 21% were determined to be at elevated risk and about a third of those initiated PrEP. And they had pretty good, given that this was such a large scale program and it was Early in the days of PrEP implementation in Uganda and Kenya, they had um, pretty high persistence at six months. And what was really exciting, and this was reported uh, last or this year in um, PLOS Medicine, is that they had a 74% lower HIV incidence in this context um, at a population level um, due to PrEP initiation. They had to deal with a lot of barriers and respond to these um, in terms of rumors in the community, 
huge amount of stigma about taking a pill that looks basically identical to um, treatment, fears of whether they would be stigmatized based on taking PrEP as being seen as promiscuous, their partners are not always supportive, the pill size, taking a pill daily. Um, a lot of these issues were challenges, but the team was really great about responding to those. And they developed out-of-facility visits and tried to make it easier to use it. And here's a quote um, that just reminds us that PrEP is new and um Women, in this case, this woman said, I would like to use it, but my worry is I I don't know anyone who's benefited from PrEP. So it it is different than treatment where you can see people gain weight, um, have a um, a visible impact on their life. Um, PrEP is, is much less visible. So lesson one, and I'll start wrapping up now, is that we, we need interventions to um, – Increase prep motivation. And one thing I think we, many of us have learned is that we have to move away from um, some of our old public health style messages about um, fear of acquiring HIV and make this much more game framing positive about health promotion and, and empowerment. And I'll show you some examples of that. We have to grapple with the fact that we're not very good at um, recognizing risk um, as uh, providers. We're not good at recognizing it in our patients. And at individuals, there's often a discordance. At an individual level, there's also often a discordance between perceived and actual risk. And we see this a lot in young women in Africa, where their risk is really their partner's risk, or they're not knowing their partner's status. And I think we had to learn this the hard way in parts of Africa, that Branding prep for high-risk individuals made it harder to get it into the general population um, and in populations where people did not view themselves at being at high risk. So one of the things to address that is demand creation. And I think this has been a fun area where we've learned a lot that we have to engage the populations we're trying to reach in developing captivating, effective messaging, listen to the PrEP users in terms of what PrEP offers them in terms of decreased anxiety, increased uh, confidence and uh, trust in relationships, increased self-efficacy, sexual pleasure and intimacy, and truly empowerment. Uh, Chicago led the way with a campaign that engaged a lot of stakeholders to develop more sex-positive messages where they sort of played off some of our epidemiologic terms like catching something or transmitting something to make it about um, catching desire, transmitting love, contracting heat, spreading and tingling. So I think we um, it can actually be a fun aspect of prep delivery is to figure out what are the things that will engage people. And I'll just take you through a video that we've developed in um, I have big South Africa. And bigger plans. I'm prepared for life's twists and turns. I'm in control. Then you pure, you take every day to stay HIV negative. 
It's like a pregnancy prevention pill. If you take it every day, you won't fall pregnant. And if you take PrEP every day, you won't catch HIV. If I've been taking it, I know I'm protected. I'm looking out for my future. I use it because I want to be in control. So that was uh, a 90 second video that took us a long time to develop, but it was actually great because we heard back from young women in uh, this Cape Town township about how they wanted PrEP to be reflected and what would motivate them. There have been a number of examples. The Kenya program was one of the first to really take on PrEP on a large scale um, in Kenya. And again, just very colorful, simple um, images that draw you in. Thailand, they tried to develop game frame demand creation to uh, create awareness and interest among transgender women and were able to um, determine through at least one survey that it increased uptake in one of their prep programs in Bangkok by over almost 300% in late 2020. So we have to get the message out, but we have to do it in creative ways and engage our community partners in helping us get the message right. Um, a second lesson is we need interventions to increase PrEP access. And this is where we can also build on our learnings from treatment access to make it easy, affordable, available, and acceptable using community-based delivery and key population-based models, pharmacy-based telehealth and express services. One of the things we developed with bedsider.org to try to help PrEP access in uh, South Africa was a decision support tool that sort of takes um, people, prospective users coming to primary care clinics through what is PrEP, why take it, how well does it prevent it, but without statistics, just in these buckets of the good stuff, the annoying stuff, stuff not to worry about. And we found that this doubled PrEP persistence in young South African women being more informed users. In Thailand, in part due to COVID, uh, they developed uh, more mobile delivery programs for PrEP, as well as STI self-sampling, and found not only was it helpful in responding to keeping PrEP access up during COVID, but also users liked it. It was convenient. Lastly, we need interventions to increase effective use of PrEP. And I think that we need to... Um, as clinicians, for those of us who are clinicians, need to think about PrEP differently than ART. We need to help people evaluate and continue to reevaluate their PrEP needs and how, uh, whether they want to continue it or stop, they may want to restart. We need to be better equipped to counsel them and then make it easy to do the um, testing for HIV, STIs, use telehealth, pharmacy delivery, and other express services. So overall, our goal is to increase PrEP uptake, effective use, persistence, and impact by making PrEP easier for both providers and users. And um, Moses Kamia at CROI 2021 did a beautiful um, job in one of the symposia in describing these different concepts about when, to del- de- when where, how, what, who, what um, about delivery could make it better. So in con- Conclusion, I'll say that 
um, we are making progress, but we're still limited due to substantial gaps in PrEP uptake and use. The PrEP cascade will always look different than the HIV care cascade, so we need to change our thinking about cascades when we're thinking about prevention versus treatment because risks change um, and people's need for prevention will change. And we need to collect information in a way that helps us respond to the gaps and the drop-offs and motivation, access, effective use, and persistence, and learn from oral prep about how to address the motivation, how to do better at game-framing community and client-centered campaigns, uh, how to do a much better job at PrEP access and effective use in terms of making it easier for clients to use PrEP and to use all these lessons to be better prepared for delivering PrEP choice in the near future as we develop, um, as we implement new options, including Depivirine Ring, Cab LA, and hopefully in the future, Eslatravir and Lenacapravir. So I'll conclude by just thanking the people who shared slides and have shared their experiences and their their successes and challenges and allowed me to share some of those uh, here. Thank you. And thank you. Um, what a rich talk. And, you know, you're right. Uh, we really were just at the beginning when PrEP was approved, and uh, we have so far to go. But I think you pointed out some very positive aspects that, uh, that we mm-hmm. can learn from. And, and hopefully improve where we are. Um, we have a few questions in the Q&A, and um, Connie, if you would be willing to go in the Q&A and maybe answer those questions, I think we don't have time to address them um, uh, live and in person. So if you could do that, that would just be awesome. Okay. And thank you very much. Thank you.